So with that, let us begin. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who entered Egypt. Each man with his household entered with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the people who were directly descended from Jacob numbered 70. But Joseph was already in Egypt. And the time Joseph and his brothers and all the generation died, the Israelites, however fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and became extremely strong. So the land was filled with them. Now, this phrase, these are the names of the sons of Israel, is a direct repeat from the very end of Genesis. And so just like Exodus begins with and, these are the sons, it also shows you this is a continuation of the story by repeating the exact line that Exodus ended with. This is not the exact last line of Genesis, but it's right there in that very end. And so he's connecting these two books together. The other thing that he's doing is he's also showing his faithfulness to you. Because one, can, one of the things that the Israelites are going to ask is, where has God been? Okay? Because we're going to go from 70 people in Israel to around 28,000 people in Israel. And then all that time they've been enslaved. And so the question is, where have you been, God? So the other thing that's doing here is notice that five times their numerousness, if that's a word, has been repeated. Multiplied, become exceedingly strong, they fill the land. And what that's automatically doing is connecting you to two events. It's connecting you all the way back to the garden in Genesis 1 when God said, be fruitful and multiply. And it's showing you that they're still fulfilling the divine mandate of the first chapter of Genesis. The second thing that it's doing is taking you back to the Abrahamic covenant where God said, I will make you into a great nation, a numerous people. So it's showing that not only are they fulfilling the direct mandate that God had for them, but God is faithful to his promise to Abraham, even though it's going to feel like that he's not because they're enslaved. But then he's going to reveal himself and you're going to find out what God exactly has been doing. And so he's connecting you to those things. Now notice too that when it says that they filled the land, the Hebrew word there, filled, means to swarm. And that word swarm is used again of the flies and the plagues. So this is to give you an idea of how numerous they are. Now we don't take that literally. Like there's, there's no way that there's like billions and billions of them but there's, they're swarming. It's, they're, they're numerous. Everywhere you look, there's an Israelite. Okay? Because God has been faithful to them. And so that's what he's showing here. So in verse 8 it says, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Now notice that we automatically begun with that absence. If he doesn't know Joseph, then he doesn't know the God of Joseph. And that's what the whole point of Exodus is going to do is to begin to undo that. That's like repeating the word no is going to show up over and over and over again. Now the question becomes, how does he not know who Joseph is? If you remember in the story of Genesis, Joseph was appointed to become the visor of Egypt, the second most powerful person of Egypt. And Egypt was the most powerful, most dominant empire in the entire ancient world and in the, east, the near eastern ancient world. And so Egypt controlled 
all the way south down the Nile into Africa, Nubia and Kush and, and Ethiopia. And then they controlled over the top part of Africa into what we know are what the later will be called Lydia and Libya. And then they controlled all the way up into what we know as modern day Israel. Okay, and it had incredible political influence over even the Mesopotamia region of Tigris and Euphrates, what we know today as Iraq and Iran and all that kind of stuff. It was a powerful entity in the ancient world. And not only that, when everybody in the world is the Near Eastern world, is starving to death from a famine in the land, the only place they have to go to is Egypt because of Joseph. And they, they actually rent, they sell their land to Joseph, who then rents it to them, which gives Egypt even more power. This guy single-handedly saved the ancient Near East and was given an incredible amount of power by Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh has no idea who he is? I mean, you would be ashamed if our presidents didn't know who Washington was or Abraham Lincoln. I mean, yeah, that was a long time ago, but my goodness. If, I mean, we're ashamed when Americans don't know them, let alone the political figure running the nation. Okay, how do you not know who Joseph is? Now, here's what's interesting is, first of all, we're told that he's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a circumlocation, I didn't say that right, so, of the big house. Okay, it's basically a way of saying that you're king without saying you're king, so you're just the big house. You're the head over the big house of Egypt. And so that's what the word Pharaoh means, that title. Now, what's interesting is you'll notice as you go through the Bible, there's only two times that the Pharaoh is ever mentioned by name. When we get later into Kings, we're told about Nico and Shishak. Okay, those are the only two pharaohs that you mentioned. All throughout the Bible, it's just Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. I remember there was this guy who just became a Christian, and he was reading the Bible for the first time ever. He was at my camp, and he was like, wow, this Pharaoh's amazing. He lived for a long time. <laughs> I was like, well, it's, it's like president or king, okay? That's not his personal name. The Bible never tells you the names, and it makes it very hard to figure out what Pharaoh in Egyptian history this is, and even to date Exodus when you don't get any of those names. Now, the Bible is doing this for a couple of reasons. First, it's doing it because that's how the Pharaohs view themselves too. The Pharaohs believed that they were a divine incarnation of their most high god, Horus, um, who was the sun god. Before Horus, it, his name was Re or Ra, um, but Horus eventually replaces him. He's the sun slash sky god. And they believe that Horus like incarnated into them. And so they believe that they kind of stepped into this spiritual being called Horus. And Horus was up there, but a little bit of Horus was also down here. And that they became Horus when they became Pharaoh, when they were inaugurated. And they believe that even though the Pharaoh might be fallible and make mistakes and he may be selfish or whatever, when he went into Pharaoh ruling mode, he was divinely perfect without any flaws. Because at that point, the spirit of Horus took over. It's kind of like the Pope of Catholics. Not quite as extreme, um, but that kind of an idea that when he speaks, it's God. But in this sense, he's God. And so no matter how many pharaohs you have, individual men, there's only really one pharaoh over Egypt all the time. And so part of the reason by not mentioning pharaoh by name 
is to kind of use the language that the ancient people use. But more importantly than that, God's not really that interested in keeping Egyptian traditions. The more important reason is Pharaoh is going to claim to be the greatest thing that the world's ever seen. He's an incarnation of Ra, Re, Horus, running the most powerful empire over the entire world. And God is going to make the point that as Pharaoh asks, who is this Yahweh? God's going to respond by saying, you are the nobody. I'm not even going to mention your name. And so he, and then what's interesting is Pharaoh is never mentioned by name. But the name of a little girl that hides Moses is mentioned by name. The ma- name of two Egyptian maidservants who, ta- who refused to kill the newborn babies is mentioned by name. The name of a mother, who ref- just a common mother, who refuses to submit to Pharaoh and kill her baby is mentioned by name. And what's interesting is the first two chapters is actually dominated by women, everyday normal women who are mentioned by name. Yet the most powerful man in the entire kingdom is not mentioned by name. And God is intentionally contrasting that and saying, you're not mentioned by name because you don't know who Yahweh is. But these women are mentioned by name because they know who Yahweh is. And even though women have just as much value as men because they were both created in the image of God and they were both made kings and queens and they were both made priests, the culture views a woman as less valuable than a man. And yet it's the woman that God is going to highlight in these first couple of chapters, which makes more of the point that God uses what the culture thinks is the most insignificant and ignores what the culture thinks is the greatest. And that's a theme all throughout the Bible. Okay? And the other reason he's doing this is he's also trying to show you that ultimately in the end there technically really is only one Pharaoh, and that is the kingdom of Satan. And even though Satan is never really directly mentioned in the First Testament, that will be a later idea that will be fully developed in the Second Testament. doesn't mean that that demonic kingdom is not there. And ultimately, Pharaoh, if he's not serving Yahweh, he's serving some other thing, his self-interest. And by not saying Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh all throughout the Bible, God is showing you that ultimately in the end, the same way, when he goes to Aram in the north, it's Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad all throughout the Bible, which means master. And we typically talks about rulers from different countries. Most of the time, he doesn't mention by name. He's trying to show you there's really only two kingdoms in the world, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And if you're not serving God, you're serving the other. And that's the point that Daniel's going to make when he has a vision of the statue And though there are different parts of the statue represent different kingdoms, they're all part of one statue. They're technically one kingdom. And so this is the point that God is trying to make here is, your kingdom doesn't matter. You're the nobody. Because ultimately all that matters is my kingdom. And Pharaoh, you become a somebody when you join my kingdom. And that's exactly the same thing he's going to do with Moses. Moses is a somebody who thinks he's all that, and he can deliver Israel on his own power. But then he fails miserably and goes out in the wilderness, and he's as nobody out in the wilderness, and he's taking care of some other guy's sheep because he's going to realize that once you realize you're a nobody, then you can realize how God can use a nobody and make you a somebody. Okay, and that's what he does. Chuck Swindoll has this, he says that... um, 
Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking that he was a somebody. He spent the next 40 years of his life thinking, realizing that he was a nobody. He spent the last 40 years of his life finding out how God can take a nobody and make him into something great in the kingdom of God. Okay, And that's what God is doing here. Who do you belong to? And that's how you're known. But what's interesting, too, is we're told that this is a new king, a new pharaoh. Okay, how is it, back to that original question, how is it that this pharaoh doesn't know Joseph? Well, we think we kind of understand this. We've done our best, as in scholars and commentaries, to date the book of Exodus. The Bible helps us. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, tells us the Exodus happened 480 years um, before Solomon began to build his temple. Well, we know the date of the temple being built. That's all everybody agrees on. Even the anti-Bible history channel agrees on that date. Okay? So if you do the math backwards, that gives you a 1446 B.C. date of the Exodus. Okay? Give or take a year. Dating is hard to figure out in the ancient world. And two, three, four years maybe we're off, but around there we're pretty good. And so 1446 is probably about the time of the Exodus. Right, which then you can do your math backwards for Moses and, and um, Joseph and all that kind of stuff. So that puts Joseph going into Egypt around 1876 B.C. Now remember in B.C. we're counting down the closer we get to Christ. And that means Joseph is dying around 1806. Okay? Now, like I said... This is the further and further we get from Solomon, the harder and harder is to nail down dates. Because you have to realize nobody, most people in the ancient world didn't know when they were born. Okay, if you, Even if you go to most countries, they don't know when they were born. They don't know what day of the week it is. They weren't record keepers of dates like we are. We're obsessed with record keeping. In the ancient world, they didn't have the tools. They didn't have Google and iPhones and flip calendars all the time. They barely can have a scrap of paper, let alone a calendar. Um, and they didn't really care. And ultimately, if you really think about it, it's not really that important. And so the reality is they don't know a lot of dates. And two, they didn't think, I was born in 19-whatever. Because they didn't date years. They didn't number the years. The years are based on kings. And so the way that you did it was like, you'd be like, if you actually knew and cared, which most people didn't. Most people were just working on farms or with animals and trying to stay alive. And they would just pick a festival to celebrate some people's, like, you know when you have April birthday parties for everybody in your family? They kind of just did that. Like, well, we're going to this festival for our God, so we'll just kind of celebrate these people's birthdays there too. And that's kind of how they did it. But what they did is if they did want to date something, they dated it by the king, because the king was the absolute power. So it was like, well, I was born in the fourth reign of Tutmos. And my dad died in the third reign of Nico. And then I had my kid in the second reign of, and that's how they did it. Okay, it wasn't until later when the Romans came along that they actually picked a date and started numbering. And then, then you had to figure out. Now, here's what makes it even more confusing. A king, when they became ruler, might say that the first day they sat on the throne was their first year ruling. Which are like, you're not a year reigning yet. That's the first day. But they would say that was their first year. Another king might say, after they ruled for a year, that was their first year. 
Then other kings would say, but I co-ruled with my father for four years, and then I, when he died, I started reigning. And so they might pick the reign of their father, but then when the Babylonians talk about them, they're picking the day that they actually took the throne when their father wasn't there. So you've got to put all this together and figure out exactly what year they actually start ruling and then put it into a calendar that we created. So this makes dating very difficult. Okay, So just to be aware, when the History Channel's throwing out all these dates and proving the Bible wrong, it's not that easy. Okay, It's not that easy at all. And so the best that we can tell is that these are the dates because we're, we're dealing with very few records. Okay? Now, what we know then is, and I had a slide for you, but the projector didn't work, so I'm sorry that I'm making you like visualize all this, but I had it all laid out, but that doesn't work. Um, but we don't need technology. So there are three major kingdoms in Egypt. This is what scholars have called them, not Egyptians. There's, and they're really technical, fancy names. Okay? The old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. Okay? <laughs> And in between each of these kingdoms are called the intermediate periods. So you basically have the old kingdom. The old kingdom was when the, one of the first pharaohs, not the first pharaoh, but one of the first dominant, all-powerful pharaohs by the name of Menes, took power, and he unified the lower Egypt and the upper Egypt into one empire. And he took both crowns, and he fit them together, and he put them on his head, and that ushered in what's called the old kingdom. And that was like... And so what it did is because he unified Egypt together, he started building Egypt into a military power that then conquered Nubia and Ethiopia and controlled the Nile, gave him control of lots of gold that was in Nubia, and he started building Egypt up into what we know as big old powerful Egypt with really cool art and religion and all that kind of stuff. Something happened around the first intermediate period where the economy of Egypt collapsed. We don't know exactly what caused it, and what, um, but it might have been flooding and all that kind of stuff. We know what flooding can do to economies and that kind of stuff, but something happened and the economy collapsed. And when the economy collapsed, the Pharaoh lost his power because if he's supposed to control and bring peace to everything and he's not doing a good job, then people don't like him. And then smaller little city-states rebel and people go back to their governor, so to speak. And because they know and can see their governor, where that president up there in Washington, D.C., we don't ever see him because we don't have television. And so they go to people that they see to lead them rather than somebody way, way, way up there in the capital that we can never see. And so he began to lose his power. And this, of course, this leads everybody into a Great Depression, and Egypt begins to fall apart. Then some other pharaoh comes back in and regains power and builds everything back up and brings Egypt back into this height of power, and that's called the Middle Kingdom. And so the old, middle, and new are based on regaining of power. It is sometime at the very end of the old kingdom that we think that Joseph comes into power. It's the very end of the old kingdom that Joseph seems to come into power. Now what's interesting is that at the very end of Joseph's reign which is also at the very end of the Old Kingdom, we know that there is this worldwide famine, which is going to affect power. At the same time, there's what we know from Egyptian documents, there's this invasion called Hyksos invasion, and that's H-Y-K-S-O-S. H-Y-K-S-O-S. The Hyksos invasion and rule was 
from around 1720 to 1570. Okay, Se um, 1720 to 1570. Now, don't worry, there's no test. <laughs> Although, if you take my class, there is my high school kids. So, um, <clears throat> that Hyksos, what we know is that Hyksos just means the, the barbarian foreigners. You have to remember, every, if, if, if they're not you, they're called barbarians. That's all the word barbarian means. Okay, we think of barbarians as uncivilized people who like drag their wives around and eat meat. But barbarian, like, you have to realize the Persians called the Greeks barbarians. And the Greeks were pretty civilized. Now, morally, no, but civilized, yes. And the Vikings were actually somewhat more civilized than even the Roman Empire was again, but the Vikings were the barbarians. The barbarians are the people that are not you, because your culture is always better than everybody else's culture. Okay? So the Hyksos is just a word that means the foreign barbarians, kind of be, or the foreign lesser people, or the ingrates, or whatever. And they come in, and they slowly were migrating into Egypt, probably because they wanted Egypt's food and they didn't have it. And over time, their numbers became greater than the Egyptians, and they actually sacked the current Egyptian pure-blooded rulers and took over, and they set up what well, this became known as the Second Intermediate Period. Now, what's interesting is Egypt actually did not decline, but it's still called the Second Intermediate Period because the Egyptians view it as a decline. It's not necessarily an economic decline. It was an ethnic purity decline. Okay? And so they're ruling, and they're ruling over these Egyptians. And the Egyptians, now you have to realize, people in the ancient world never said anything bad about themselves. If you recorded something bad about your nation, your king killed you and re-edited it. Okay, that's just the way it did. The only time you ever know anything bad about a nation is when the other nations are talking about them. And then you got to figure out, like, are they exaggerating to make that nation look bad? How accurate it is? Well, if there four, four different nations are all saying it, then it's probably accurate. Da, 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 da. You know how it is. Like, who's lying? Well, we just try to listen to all the kids and get the truth somewhere. Okay? That's what makes the Bible so unique. The Bible is the only historical document from the ancient world that actually records negative things about its leaders and its people. Because the Bible has a theological agenda. Man will fail you, only God will save you. But the world has a theological agenda. The men will save you, and we can build our own empire, the Tower of Babel. And so different theological agendas are going to affect how you write your Bibles or your books or your records. But what's interesting, the Egyptians actually recorded the Hyksos invasion, even though it made it look bad. But a lot of people said that probably the only reason they recorded this was so that the, their defeat of the Hyksos was such a great event that it makes Egypt look really good that the only way you can make yourself look that good is you have to first talk about the invasion. Okay, It's like the Independence Day. Okay, If we're going to talk about how awesome Independence Day was, July 4th, we've got to talk about how bad it was that the, the British were controlling us and the French kind of and all that kind of stuff. Okay, So the Egyptians actually recorded it. And they recorded this time period. Now what happens is around the 1500s, a people in the south, see the Hyksos only controlled the north. They did not control Thebes in the south of the Nile. So these people who could trace their bloodline back to the last pure-blooded Egyptian ruler begin a rebellion. The Hyksos, I mean, nobody lasts for long. Eventually people have been in power for so long that they get complacent, they get cocky, and then rebellions can happen. And so these people begin to rebel. And so a guy by the name of Kamos begins this rebellion. 
And notice the Kamos, Moses, okay? Kamos begins his rebellion, and he actually doesn't succeed in the rebellion. He actually gets hit in the head with an axe, and this is kind of cool. And in an archaeologist sense, it's cool. In a dying sense, it's not. But they've actually found his mummy, and they unwrapped him, and he's got a cracked skull, and there's a piece of the axe metal blade still rattling around his skull when they found him. So it just validated the historical records. So this guy was rebelling, and he didn't succeed, but his brother, Hamos, okay, A-H-M-O-S-E, Hamos, um, continued the rebellion and succeeded. Hamos the first succeeded and reestablished the glory of Egypt, okay? And one of the things he did was he purged Egypt of all non-Egyptian influence, okay? He either removed them or enslaved them, okay? And so he took over. He then launches in what's called the New Kingdom, and the New Kingdom is going to become the greatest height of Egypt's power in all of history. This is where, if you guys know Egyptian just a little bit from History Channel, this is the kingdom of Ramses II, the city builder, Tutankhamun, the boy king that they found all that treasure, and it's in the British Museum, and Akhenaten, and Nefertiti, and um, Hatshepsut, suit, the really famous, powerful female pharaoh that dressed like a man in order to make everybody think that she had power. Um, so the, the, this produces all those pharaohs that the History Channel is obsessed with in your your history class in high school, that's the new kingdom. That's what we think of as Egypt. It is that kingdom that Moses is born into. Okay? So the first really powerful king was Hamas. He regained control over Nubia and Ethiopia. He re-influenced Canaan or Israel. And he really established, and he's going to maintain this power for a long time until David actually comes along. And um, even then, it's still going to be very powerful. It is probably Hamos the first, or Tutmos, or this first. That's probably this new king, because he knows that this new king does not know Joseph. Well, why would he not know Joseph? He grew up on the stories of Joseph. Joseph is forgotten. Hyksos came in; they didn't know Joseph because they were foreign influence. They didn't really care about Egyptian history because the first thing an invading power does is get rid of the previous history and bring theirs in. And then this Hamos guy comes in, and he doesn't know any of that stuff. And he's rewriting Hyksos history and all that kind of stuff. He's erasing, erasing the Hyksos name. And he comes in the power. He doesn't know Joseph. And not only that, they've been oppressed by the, the, the Hyksos, Semitic people. And you have to remember, even though in, in today's media, the word Semitic means Jews, the word Semitic really just means anybody from the ancient Near East. Okay, anybody around Mesopotamia, down into Israel. It's just that group of people. So they just removed this Semitic influence of people who controlled them, and they just got rid of them. Probably the only reason they didn't kick the Israelites out was because the Israelites weren't a threat. But the Israelites are not Egyptian. And they're really numerous because they're swarming the land. And they probably fear another foreign uprising that will take over, so they enslave them. Because that's what we usually do. We either kill them, drive them out, or enslave them. And so they enslave the Israelites in order to oppress them. And so you've got a new king who doesn't know Egyptian history like he should, and he's enslaving these people. Why would anybody do that to Joseph's people? That's our best understanding. Now, that might not be wrong, but most scholars agree that's probably pretty close to accurate. 
What's also interesting is when Stephen in the book of Acts of chapter 7 is rehashing Israel's history in a summary, he, when he describes this Pharaoh, he uses the word new, not as in like, I got a popsicle stick and it dropped in the dirt, so I got a new popsicle stick. He uses the word new like I had a pencil, a number two pencil, and I got a new pencil as in a mechanical pencil. A new as in different, not like the previous. So the idea is not just a new president came into power, but a completely different kind of president that our governments never, our governments never had before. A new government. When we get to the prophets, Isaiah, Isaiah actually talks about this king in more of an Assyrian terminology, where the Assyrians are Semitic people. So even the prophets refer to this time period before this king as a Semitic time period. And now we have a non-Semitic time period. So you had to realize that when he sees the Israelites here, he sees a foreign people who are look a lot like those people who are ruling our country, and we finally drove them out, and they're very numerous, and we're scared of another political identity and revolution, and we're going to oppress them so we can control our power. And that's what he's trying, the Bible's trying to communicate to you. Now, why is all that important? You're like, okay, that's just like one verse. Do we really need to know that? Yes, because you need to know that this is about oppressing people to maintain control and power. This isn't just about we need a workforce, and they volunteered, and slowly over time they just kind of lose their value because of this servant class, which happens in other cultures. People who are servants eventually are looked down. This isn't a gradual thing. This is we fear you. Now, on top of that, not only do they fear that in a cultural, historical sense, but the Bible tells us that they fear the growing numbers of the Israelites. Why is Israel growing? Because God is blessing them. And this is another important theme. What we view as a blessing to us, the world views as a threat. What God, When God blesses his people, the world sees that as competition and a threat. And the world tends to respond by trying to oppress us. And so this is about control. And you need to see that because you need to see way before Moses faces off with Pharaoh. It doesn't begin there. It began all the way back with these Hyksos people. It began with the overinflated view of Egypt and that I am divinely appointed by a god. And I had the right to rule. And these Semitic people threatened my divine appointment. And I finally drove them out and regained control. Hooah, look at us. And now something else is coming in the name of Moses, threatening that again. And what we're going to find when we get to the Exodus, this has really less to do with Israel and Egypt and more to do with the gods of Egypt and Yahweh. Who really controls the world? And so it begins by exercising their control and their dominance by enslaving, controlling, oppression. And this is also important because you're going to see the difference between the way the world rules and the way that Yahweh is going to rule when we get to Sinai and the Mosaic Covenant. Because the Egyptians brought oppression and death, but the Mosaic Covenant is going to bring life and joy and peace. And the Bible is intentionally setting this contrast up so you can see that. Okay, any questions? Give you a chance to process it. <laughs> That's why we have audio and 
this, so you can go through it again. So, Pharaoh begins to fear the blessing of God that makes these non-Egyptian people numerous. So his first response is to enslave them. Ultimately, in the end, Pharaoh's going to just straight out go door to door and kill people. And you're like, why didn't he start with that? Because you can't do that. You can't start with that. Is that exactly where Hitler started? No. You start with demonizing a people. That's exactly what the media is doing to Christianity right now. You just can't go out and get everybody kill a bunch of people group and the overwhelming majority of people not be okay with that. What you do is you demonize them. You give people a reason to hate them enough that by the time you get to killing them, then more people are okay with it. And the people who are not, well, you just lump them in with uh, sympathizers. And so the first thing that Pharaoh has to do is start a propaganda machine. He's got to make a little lie. The reality is when you do the census numbers, the, the Jews are not actually more numerous than Egypt, Egypt is. Okay, They're becoming numerous, but they have not grown to the point that they have outnumbered the Egyptians. But Pharaoh says they have. Because as a leader, you always have to make the problem look bigger than what it is. Okay, You always make it sound like, like with our current racial issues right now, the, the problems we're having now are horribly evil and bad. And we seriously need to deal with this and find equality. And, and, and not just equality. In my opinion, equality is not enough. We need partnership among the races. But when the media makes it sound like all white people are racist and all black, I mean, they just make it sound like everybody in these groups are like this. That's not accurate either. I mean, yes, there really truly is white privilege, but we also don't need to turn around and make it sound like everybody is this horrible, evil person who wants every person that race to die, okay? But what they do is they make the problem sound like it's worse than what it really is because then you can demonize that group to a far greater extent. And no matter how much we know the media lies to us, overwhelmingly people still believe the media. And that's what Pharaoh is doing. So he overemphasizes their numerousness. Not only that, he says the Israelite people, he calls them the nation of Israelites. They're not a nation. They're a people group. They can't be a nation. They have no national identity. They have no government. They, have no, they can't be a nation. Why does he do that? He makes them sound like they're a political threat. Okay, and he doesn't even he doesn't have the, the decency to refer to them as a people group. He has to make them more generic which is insulting and degrading, okay? And so what he's intentionally doing is he's making them sound like they're a political group that wants power, which they don't. He makes them sound like they're more dangerous than what they are, and then he refuses to call them any interpersonal term. He uses a more generic political term so that they have no, the minute you start stop seeing them as individual people and you start seeing them as a group, it becomes a lot easier to think of them as all the same. Does this make sense? And so there's an agenda. And so what he does is he says, let's control them. Okay, now you have to remember, well, you have to know something that slavery in the ancient world is not the slavery of what we had in our American history. Okay, we're not going to go into huge depths right now. We will when we get to the law. The law starts talking about servanthoods. But for right now, just know that one, Slavery was more like indentured servanthood 
or um, there was no bankruptcy law. So that you, if you couldn't pay your bills, you would sell yourself to somebody and you would work for them and they would pay you and they would take care of you. And they had to, according to law, take care of you. And if they didn't, then you could prosecute them under the law. Now, were there bad slave masters? Heck yes, there's bad bosses. But they had legal ramifications. Was it a little bit harder for somebody in the non-constitutional government to prosecute a boss? Yes, than it is today. But that doesn't mean it was. Now, our slavery was just downright demonic and evil. Okay, But they, we mistreated them as a people group, not just as a servant. You have to also realize that the racism wasn't even developed until the 1700s. There was really no concept of racism until the 1700s. And the whole reason that racism even came about was because we were starting to have the technology to spread to other cultures, and we saw rich resources in those cultures, which we call colonialism, and we had to justify why we had the right to take the resources from them. And what we noticed is a lot of those cultures looked different than white Europeans, so we developed racism to give ourselves an excuse to take from them. That's where racism came from, okay? Now, it's a lot more complicated than that. So you have to realize that slavery is not what it was back then. So to make them servants or their working class is not that hard for people to accept. But then if you demonize them enough in your propaganda, then their slavery eventually turns into a lot more what we're familiar with. What's interesting is the slavery that we see in the Bible actually looks closer to the slavery we had in American history, but is so foreign compared to so many other slaveries at that time period. This is a unique thing at this time period. Okay, like I said, that doesn't mean people didn't abuse slaves at different times and that kind of stuff but not on the government approval na national scale that America did. Because you have to realize corporations and businesses didn't own slaves in the ancient world. Only individual families did, and not like today. And so, but we'll, we'll talk, I'll go into this a lot more detail when we get to the law, okay? But for right now, just know that what's happening here is even extreme for the ancient world, this oppression. And so he puts foreman over. But notice, has God been mentioned yet? No. But despite the oppression, what's happening to Israel? They continue to multiply. That doesn't happen. Now, why would he enslave them? One, enslaving a people group separates men and women from each other. Because you're going to expect a lot more from the men than you do the wives to work in the, whatever they're building, the cities which means you separate the man from the woman, and the woman stays home with the children, typically in that kind of a culture, and she'll still work, but not the hours and the intensity of the man, which means that the man and the woman have less time to be with each other, which means they have less time to make children, which means the population growth automatically begins to decline because the man and the woman aren't together. You see that. Notice that our population, people had a lot more kids pre-Industrial Revolution. The minute the Industrial Revolution came in the 19, early 18, 1900s, then the man was taken out of the home, put in the factories, which means they had less time to be with each other. So the family went from 12 and 8 down to 3 and 2. And we've been at that ever since. The minute you separate the man and the woman, your population goes down. And in fact, we're at our lowest birth rate than we ever have been before in the history of America. Okay? And so, you, so that reduces the population. Not only that... That means there's no longer two people, man and woman, and more kids working the field. Fewer kids, 
a husband gone building a city means less people working in the field, less time to work the field, which means your crop production goes down, which more people in that culture begin to starve to death. So then you begin to die earlier of starvation. Three, not only that, now the man is working even harder because he has to do that. Then he has to come home at the end of the day, you know, and then you have to take care of your house and all that kind of stuff. So you work even harder, which means now you're overworked and more than you've ever have been, which means you're more likely to get sick. And slavery doesn't tolerate sickness, which means you die quicker. So it's a good way to reduce the population without just blatantly stabbing them with swords. And so that's what Pharaoh begins to do. 